Have you ever been amazed by something only to later be disappointed by it? I felt this way recently with a product that I saw, which I was very tempted to purchase. Now, if you're a student here, you're not going to be able to relate to me at all on this product, okay? You know you're growing up when you're fascinated by baby products. But (laughs) what I saw was this new type of baby monitor called the iBaby. And the iBaby is not some robot baby put out by Apple, okay? So it's a baby monitor. It's a video camera that you actually set up in your baby's room. And then it connects to your Wi-Fi network. And through your internet, the camera connects to your computer or your iPhone or your iPad or your iPod or whatever, whatever you want. And wherever you want, on whatever you want, you can see a live video and audio feed of your baby. It's pretty impressive. It, was, uh, it really fascinated me, and it definitely takes the concept of a baby monitor up two or three notches, for sure. I thought it was genius, and I thought I was excited to maybe buy the product for my wife. That is, until I went online and read customers' reviews of the product. It rated like 1.5 stars out of 5, and people hated it. And... Now, I should say, they're coming out with a new one that supposedly rates a whole lot better, so I'm optimistic. But with the original product, the camera did a terrible job of actually connecting to the Internet. It had all kinds of technical problems that people just couldn't solve on their own. And so it was really, it was a great concept, but it was a terrible product. And though I was first very impressed, I ended up pretty disappointed by it. When we're initially amazed by something, but then it ultimately disappoints us, I think it does something to us. It, it can subconsciously turn us into skeptics of all kinds of things in our lives, whether it's other products, or it's businesses, or governments, churches, friends, even our faith. It's often true that if something sounds too good to be true, it is too good to be true. But there's a massive problem with letting this pessimism cloud our perception of good things, which actually are both very good and very true. We, for example, we can hear stories of Jesus from Scripture, and how amazing Jesus was, and how amazing he is. And just by the nature of how amazing he is, we can doubt. Because he just sounds too good to be true. But here's the truth. Jesus is good. Jesus is amazing. And Jesus never disappoints. Really, he's nowhere close to too good to be true. And if we truly buy into following him with our whole lives and our whole hearts, we'll never write a bad review. We need to understand this today as we look into another account of Jesus' life on earth, where he performed yet another mind-bending miracle and where we are once again called to respond with faith and worship for who he is. Jesus is true and good and amazing, and Jesus never disappoints. We're going to see this from a passage in the Gospel of Luke today. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you can find one in the pew in front of you. 
and we'll be on page 867. Luke chapter 9, page 867, and we'll be starting in verse 37 today. So find that spot, and as you do, I'm going to begin by praying, because I believe we need God's help as we look into God's Word today to really understand and really to apply. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would cause our faith to rise, cause our eyes to see, see your love for us, see your authority, and see your majesty. Help our hearts to be drawn to you. Help us to fall to our knees in amazement for who you are. We ask this in Jesus' name. So let's set the stage a little bit, shall we, for Luke 9.37. What the story we're going to read today happens one day after last week's story. If you weren't with us, Jesus took three of his key disciples, Peter, James, and John, and went on a hike up Mount Hermon where they rested and they prayed. And while they were there, the disciples got to see something incredible as Jesus' physical appearance was radically transformed in front of them. They saw Jesus in really what was his natural state, bright and glorious and terrifying. They also saw Moses and Elijah appear with them on the mountain and have a conversation with Jesus. And then they had, they saw, they had the glory cloud of God's presence descend upon them in a thick fog. And in the fog they heard God the Father say this in verse 35, he said, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And then it says, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now this would have been a shocking, astounding, life-changing event for these disciples. Just blown them away. And the next day, as they descended the mountain, they might as well have still been seeing spots in their eyes from the brightness of Jesus' glory. And having their ears ringing with the voice of God the Father. But life quickly returned to normal. If anything about Jesus could be called normal. Read with me in verse 37. It says, On the next day... When they had come down the mountain, from, down from the mountain, a great crowd met them. Okay? After you go on an incredible holiday or vacation, and you come back home, how does it feel to go back to work the next day? Deflating? Gloomy? Depressing? Something like that? To see all the work that piled up in your absence just waiting for you, as if you had never left? probably a little bit of how the disciples felt here. They have been on this incredible spiritual high of spiritual highs, but ministry work was about to resume. While they had been up on the mountain, the work was piling up. A huge crowd had been assembling. Now verse 38 and 39 both begin with, and behold, which basically means look and see. So Luke wants us to see this picture, to imagine it, to see it in our mind's eye as we read. So picture this, okay? As Jesus and his three disciples walk toward the crowd, 
two people in the crowd stuck out from the rest. There was a father with his son at his side, desperately pushing and jostling, trying to get to the front of the crowd, and calling out at the top of their voice, trying to catch Jesus' attention, even for a moment. Read with me in verse 38. It says, And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. Teacher or rabbi is what Jesus was commonly known by. But this man obviously believed that Jesus was more than just a teacher by the request he was about to make. And Jesus was about to show himself to be far more than any ordinary rabbi. Notice the emotional weight behind this story. Okay? This was another only child in desperate straits, as was the case when a couple passed miracles. If you don't have kids, there's something unbelievable about having a child that you can unconditionally love as your own. It fills a, a really a, a hole in our lives. It's unbelievable feeling. For any of you who have kids, you know what I'm talking about. You know what kind of love a parent has for their children. And if your children are suffering, it pains you far more than if you were going through it yourself. I believe you. And as you try to alleviate your child's suffering, money and time become no objects to you. Right? You will go anywhere, you'll travel anywhere, you'll pay anything, you'll do anything required to help your child get through this and to help alleviate their suffering. But if it's your only child, you feel that much more of a burden for them. Not only do you not have other children to love if you were to lose them, they also have received your undivided attention and care and love throughout their lives. Extremely special bond. This father was passionate and desperate for Jesus' help. We see this in the way that Luke says he cried out and he begged Jesus to look at his son. He pleaded with him. The man was essentially treating Jesus like a doctor. Please, can you just look at him? See if there's anything at all you can do to help him. Please, Jesus. In the next verse, we see what was actually wrong with the son, why his father was so desperate. And it's not very pretty. It's a teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him, so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. Oh. We'll dig a bit deeper into how tragic this condition was in a minute. But what we have here is a case of demonic possession. When a demon or a sinfully corrupted angel, okay, that's what demons are, when it comes in and dwells a person, controlling them, oppressing them, inflicting 
physical harm to them. And we've seen similar situations like this in Luke already. But this is the first child we've seen oppressed in this way. Demons are always actively working against God's people. But they did seem especially active during Jesus' time on earth. And that's probably because they realized that their kingdom was under heavy attack when Jesus came. This passage really stands in stark contrast to the immediately previous story. Jesus had been on a mountaintop, but now he was on the ground. And on that mountain, Jesus had been called the Chosen One, the Messiah, the Son of God. And now he was just being called Teacher. Jesus was shown as exalted in heavenly glory. But now he's back to his everyday earthly ministry. The mountain had been full of light. But on the ground, darkness had to be confronted. And in this contrast, we see Jesus' always evident compassion. Carol Bach tells us that Jesus came not to glory in the mountaintop experience, but to touch the needs of people and heal their pain. He did so by overcoming those forces that stand opposed to humanity. And whether we realize it or not, one of the biggest forces that stands against us is spiritual. I like how the New Living Translation puts Ephesians six twelve, which is a very familiar verse. It says... For we are not fighting against people made of flesh and blood, but against the evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against those mighty powers of darkness who rule this world, and against wicked spirits in the heavenly realms. Did you know that we're in the midst of a spiritual battle? It rages all around us. There's an unseen world where Satan and his demons fight for our very souls. However, we don't have to be afraid of them or what they can do to us. Why not? Well, it's because of one of the main truths we're going to see clearly from our story today. First point in your notes is this. The evil forces have some limited power. Jesus has infinitely more. Okay? Evil forces have some limited power in our world, but Jesus has infinitely more. This boy's father obviously believed this as he brought his son to the feet of Jesus, thinking, I am powerless to help my son, but Jesus isn't. He can command spirits. He commands angels. And we're going to see this power exhibited in the upcoming verses. But because we've seen, we've seen several similar stories in Luke, we've talked a lot about demons recently. But you may not have been here when we did. So you wonder things like, well, are demons actually real? They sound pretty imaginary or fantastical to me. I'm sure this isn't something that we're just making up and imagining. And here's the thing. If we believe in the God of the Bible. We have got to believe in demons. Because the Bible makes it exceedingly clear that they are real and active in our lives. There are also innumerable testimonies from all across the world about demons' existence. Most of the world thinks the West is crazy 
to disbelieve the supernatural. They really do. And I believe that the devil's main strategy in North America is to deviously appear invisible. And to get everyone to buy into the lie of absolute naturalism. After all, if there is no supernatural out there, then there's no God either. So that's Satan's strategy now. Attacking at the roots. You might also wonder, though, as we read something like this, well, can't science explain away demonic possession and stuff like this? I mean, aren't they just like psychological issues that people go through? But pitting demonic possession against mental illnesses and psychological issues is really a false dichotomy. Indeed, there are many cases of real mental illnesses in our world that are not demonic. Absolutely. Some of which, in the past, may have been confused for demonic oppression. But there are also many cases of real demonic oppression that is not just psychological. Some of which are certainly confused today for psychological issues. Both are very real, very different conditions. One physical and the other spiritual. And in today's story, there is actually more than one problem. For those who are medical students here, you might hear this boy's condition and think, well, that sounds a lot like epilepsy to me. Couldn't this just be epilepsy? And in fact, this boy did have epilepsy. One of the other accounts of this story in the Gospels tells us as much, that he was having epileptic seizures. But there was also a demon present. The fact was that the disease was being used by the demon to cause this boy further harm. This poor boy was getting a brutal double dose of suffering, physical and spiritual. The condition was tragic, terrifying, really. It was like something out of a horror movie. One account says that he has suffered with this since he was a young child. And so we don't know how old he was here, but it had likely been years of agony going through this. And verse 39, once again, says, Behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. Just imagine being this boy. Okay? Going about your life, minding your own business, maybe playing games with your friends, going to school, helping out around the house, when all of a sudden, an overpowering supernatural force takes over your body. And you lose complete control as you go into violent seizures, and you begin to scream loudly, maybe with your voice, maybe with the demon's voice. We don't know. Other Bible translations say that he would suddenly scream. People come running to your side, but there's nothing they could do for you. But watch as you helplessly convulse and writhe in obvious pain. You're in so much pain, you're literally foaming at the mouth. And during these times, this demon would go so far as to try to get you to commit suicide. 
Mark tells us that the demon often tried to make the boy kill himself. And this would go on for some time until the demon finally left, but he would leave you in excruciating pain, extreme weariness, and fear. You know it's only a matter of time before he comes back. Top it off, everyone, even your family, is scared of you. All the Jews were terrified of anything that had to do with demons. Avoided it like the plague, ostracized people. Talk about a depressing, frightening, and debilitating condition. The boy's father had an apt description saying that it shatters him. With each episode, it was like his son was a, like a glass, bowl, or jar that fell to the ground and shattered. I wonder, why would a demon do this? Why would any angel really try to shatter or destroy something like this? The answer is that demons have fallen so far into sin that they hate God. And in their hatred of God, they hate all of his creations. And mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation. Likewise, mankind's redemption is the pinnacle of God's plan throughout history. And thus, demons do everything in their power to fight against God, which means fighting against his people, fighting against redemption, and trying to destroy us. Especially spiritually, but also physically. Now, demons can exert a level of influence of oppression against anyone they choose. However, in order to become possessed or oppressed to the level that this boy was, someone usually has to open themselves up to their influence in some way. And we don't know exactly what happened, but though people might not consciously do so, people often allow evil forces into their lives. We have to realize, although we do not have to fear them, demons are dangerous. Okay? And we should do all in our power to avoid them. This means avoiding things that are evil or things that have roots in evil, the occult, new age stuff, psychics, Ouija boards, witchcraft, that's alive and real in our world today, paganism, mysticism, even yoga. Oh boy. Stepped on some toes there. Satan appears as an angel of light. And then he devours like a hungry lion. We don't know how this boy ended up the way he did. Maybe he did something personally, or maybe his parents did something to open up their family to demonic influence. But whatever the case... We see it in in Weeper. His condition was miserable, heart-wrenching. What is readily apparent through this story is that evil forces do have some power in our world. That is a theological truth. However, it is definitely not the point of this story. 
Okay? The point of this story is that Jesus is stronger. Amen? God is greater. Demons stand no chance against him. He has infinitely more power than they. And so in this great compassion and great power, we see Jesus acting quickly. And in the next few verses, the Father wrapped, his, wrapped up his request, and the, the, then Jesus responded. Verse 40, the Father says, And I begged your disciples to cast out the demon, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Now we're going to come back to verses 40 and 41 shortly. But first, focus on the miracle in verse 42. This demon was not going down without a fight. Maybe he thought, oh, shoot, Jesus. I can't win this fight. I'm doomed. Can't win the war. But maybe I can win a battle. Maybe I can strike a preliminary and fatal blow. Maybe I can give this kid a seizure to end all seizures and kill him now. And so he violently threw him to the ground. The NASB says he slammed him to the ground. But Jesus wouldn't have any of that. Verse 42, while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. So the miracle consisted of two things. Jesus rebuked the demon and then he healed the boy. Told the demon off, rebuking him. Mark 9.25 records what he said. He says, "You, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you. Come out of him and never enter him again. Demon had no choice but to obey. That was his creator speaking. Authoritative command to come out. But not only would this evil spirit never come back, neither would the boy's epilepsy. See that? Jesus healed the boy completely. He completely eradicated all underlying health issues in an instant. Okay? Look at the contrast between the demon's power and Jesus' power here. Okay, The destruction that the demon had worked for years in the boy's life was completely undone in the blink of an eye. What he had taken years to do, Jesus reversed in one second boy was healed in soul and body, spiritually and physically restored entirely. And in this, we see the truth that Jesus came to earth to restore people in both body and soul. He didn't just come to work miracles in their bodies. He came to make people right with God. He came to eradicate evil. He came to forgive their sins, restore their souls, And undergirding all of this was his mission to proclaim and restore God's kingdom to earth. 1 John 3.8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared, one of many reasons, but the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
It's not a coincidence that the very next thing Jesus did after this miracle was to once again prophesy about his death. We're going to see that next week. Not a coincidence at all. It was through this death that Jesus won the everlasting victory over evil forces. Jesus broke the devil's back in his crucifixion and resurrection. And all the miracles that led up to the cross testified to his power to crush evil once and for all. Now, because of his death and resurrection, Jesus has the power to restore us as well today. We may not realize it, but without Jesus, we're no better off than this boy. At least spiritually. We are, without Jesus, we're controlled by our sin. We're under, we're subject to the devil's influence. We can do nothing to stop our impulses, and we are destined to die. But, if Jesus heals us, Jesus heals us, we can be freed and empowered and restored to life again. He can eradicate the evil from our hearts. All he asks is that we actually repent of that evil. Turn to him in faith. Realizing, to admit that we don't have the power. We can't save ourselves. you repented and believed in Jesus' power? If not, you can do so today. His power is real, his offer is gracious, and he is mighty to save. Come to Jesus, admit your need, believe in him, and call on his name today. This is really the manner in which the Father in this story approached Jesus on behalf of his son, but he came to Jesus, he admitted their desperate need, he believed Jesus could save them and heal the boy, and he asked, Jesus pleaded with him to heal him. It's the same response that we need to have today. Now you may have noticed something surprising in the father's request earlier as we read through it. Verse 40, the father's telling him about the description of his son, and then he says, And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Something was wrong with the disciples' response to this situation. They were begged to cast out the demon, but they couldn't do it. This is likely speaking of the nine disciples that didn't go up the mountain with Jesus. So while Jesus was away with Peter, James, and John, left his nine disciples there, Andrew, Thomas, Matthew, some other guys. and They were holding down the fort. Apparently they were failing holding down the fort. Now why is this so surprising? I want you to look back with me a couple passages. The beginning of chapter 9. Okay? We looked at, just a little, a little while ago, we looked at this passage, but very recently to this event, Jesus had sent his disciples out on their own for a time, with their own mission to carry out. Read with me in verse 1 of chapter 9. It says, He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all 
demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So you notice he gave them power and authority over all demons. Okay, And they had used this power effectively. Look at what verse 6 said. They departed, went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Had a wildly successful ministry. So why in the world couldn't they cast out the demon here? Jesus' response tells us that it was something to do with their lack of faith. See that in verse 41? Jesus answered, in response to this idea, his disciples had failed. He answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? It seems crazy, but somehow the disciples were faithless. They didn't believe in Jesus' power, or, or maybe that they could use Jesus' power. Or maybe they were just intimidated and scared by this demon in particular. We don't know. But whatever the case, they lacked the necessary faith to perform this miracle. However, we shouldn't just rag on the disciples. Because we have plenty of faithlessness ourselves. And in Jesus, really... It's, a moan here, a groan. You see another clear point for us to understand. That's this, that Jesus' power makes our faithlessness ridiculous and exasperating. Sorry, kids are taking notes. Those are some long words. but <laughs> I think it communicates the truth here. Jesus' great power makes our faithlessness ridiculous and exasperated. When Jesus heard that his disciples had failed, he was exasperated here. And rightly so. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Now you might think, well, that sure doesn't sound like a very loving or patient thing for Jesus to say. I mean, was it actually this difficult for Jesus to put up with us as humans? The answer is yes. It was, this was not unloving or impatient on Jesus' part. It was truly emotionally hard on him to be with sinners and to bear with sinners. Okay, understand that. It was not just physically painful for Jesus to come to earth. It hurt him emotionally too. Really the fact that he did bear with us is a testimony to his love, not a lack of it. He was fully justified here in being frustrated with his disciples. I mean, it'd be one thing if some random person failed to cast out a demon. But for the disciples, they didn't have an excuse. They had done it before. And if the issue was their faith in Jesus' power, then they really didn't have an excuse. They had seen the sick heal the lame walk, lepers cleansed, the dead raised. They had seen a storm calmed instantly and food multiplied miraculously. And they had seen demons flee from Jesus by the hundreds. And so, when they didn't have faith, it set Jesus off. And he exclaimed, O faithless and twisted generation, 
how long am I to be with you and bear it? Other translations have Jesus saying, unbelieving and perverted generation. Wouldn't that be an extremely accurate description of our generation today? The vast majority of people around us do not believe. And our culture is twisted and perverted in so many ways. Jesus' statement recalls several Old Testament passages. Uh, one of them is Deuteronomy 32, verse 4 to 5, which says, The rock, speaking of God, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. Of God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. His people have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are crooked and twisted generation. Wow. May that never be said about us. Really, do we have any more excuse than the disciples did here? Their lack of faith? We might not have seen things with our eyes, but we know them to be true. And we know far more than they knew to be true. Jesus not only kept working miracle after miracle after miracle after this, we know that Jesus was even raised from the dead himself and glorified, proving his almighty power once and for all. And yet, we struggle to have faith that will look after us today. We worry about our health. We worry about our finances. We fret about our jobs and job security, career future, our schooling. We worry about all kinds of things about our family, whether our parents or our spouses or our kids. We forget that God is in control and is guiding every aspect of our lives. We don't believe that God is truly all that we need, so we chase after other things as well. Education, riches, security, friendships, relationships, and fun. We lack faith when it comes to providing for us, when it comes to providing a spouse for us one day, or providing kids for us. We worry about what will happen to us if we stand up for Jesus in our lives. Maybe other people reject us. Can't you hear Jesus saying to us, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? And as he said to the man here, bring your son here. He's telling us, bring your problems here to me. Pray. Trust. See what I can When we see our own ridiculous lack of faith in Jesus, we have to respond like the Father did here. Mark 9.24 records him saying, Lord, I, I believe. Help my unbelief. Feel that tension of believing and yet struggling to believe? I think we all do. 
May that be our prayer today. Lord, we believe. Help us with our unbelief. Regardless of our faith or faithlessness, God's power is still going to be shown. Faith and faithlessness are both present in this passage, in the faith of the Father and the faithlessness of the disciples. But Jesus' power is shown seemingly irrespective of both. We already read in verse 42 what happened. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And then look at the response of the crowd. Verse 43 says, And all were astonished at the majesty of God. All were astonished at the majesty of God. In this response, we see what the display of Jesus' power naturally leads to, and that's Jesus' power displays God's astonishing majesty. Jesus' power displays God's astonishing majesty. As Jesus approached this boy who had fallen to the ground and lifted him up from the ground, guided him back to his father. Imagine that restoration, that reunion. This was an extremely happy ending this story. The immense, imagine, the immense relief that must have flooded over the Father as he, having his prayers for years being answered. The incredible joy as he hugged his son who had been entirely freed. The knowledge that there would be no more seizures or screams or agony. The love and the awe thankfulness he must have felt for Jesus in that moment. As everyone in the crowd watched this father probably weeping into his son's shoulders, they were appropriately amazed and astonished, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. What were they astonished by? The majesty of God. When they saw Jesus' power, they saw God's majesty. The word majesty means sovereign power, authority, or dignity. But there's really a royal aspect to majesty. It's the perceptible power of a king standing before you. And there is no difference between Jesus' power and God's power. And Jesus' majesty and God's majesty, they were the same. The only other time this word is used for Jesus, it actually takes place in 2 Peter 1.16, which we read last week. That's when Peter talked about the majesty that they witnessed in Jesus' transfiguration. So, three of them had gone up a mountain and seen Jesus' majesty displayed on that mountain. And now, everyone was seeing Jesus' majesty on the ground. It showed itself in different forms, but it all brought glory and praise to God. Here's the thing, though. When we look at Jesus' life and see what he accomplished, what he did, all his miracles, his death, his resurrection, all this, it's, it's fairly easy to be astonished by Jesus. Be astonished by what he did. He did things no one in history has ever done before or will ever 
do again. For example, Napoleon Bonaparte, of all people, <laughs> said this, Everything in Christ astonishes me. His spirit overawes me and his will confounds me. Between him and whoever else in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. He is truly a being by himself. I search in vain in history to find the similar to Jesus Christ or anything which can approach the gospel. Neither history, nor humanity, nor the ages, nor nature offer me anything with which I am able to compare it or to explain it. Here, everything is extraordinary. It's easy to be astonished by Jesus. The question is, what do we do with our astonishment? Do we shrug it off, thinking, that's a great story? means nothing to me. Do we reject it? Thinking that it's just too good to be true. Too extraordinary. Do we ignore it? Consciously put it aside and, and not realize it's life or death importance. Do you think, wow, Jesus is pretty great? But then move on to other things. Because we don't realize that the same power that Jesus displayed in his life is available today and should change our lives today. Or, do we fall to our knees and worship in awe and amazement? We say, Jesus, you gave it all up for me all I can do to give it all for you. Do we plead, Jesus, I believe in you, but you got to help me with my unbelief. Please help me eradicate the evil in my life. Teach me to believe. Teach me to have faith. What do you do with your astonishment? Here everything is extraordinary. Our astonishment must lead to more. We must believe in his almighty power for every day of our lives. We must commit our lives to Jesus and to follow into his glorious kingdom. And we must endlessly worship him in his majesty. Just like Jesus' disciples, I think we sure still have much to learn. That God is in control. Father, help us to see the majesty of your Son. Help us worship you. Help us believe in you. Help us follow you. You know that we know that we can't do this on our own. Please send your Spirit to empower us. Help us to live for you. We trust in you this morning. Help us to trust in you tomorrow. We praise you throughout our lives what comes our way. For you are worthy and you are beautiful and you are glorious beyond our wildest dreams. Praise you.